0: This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory of Raina Hiller, who passed away a few months back at the untimely age of 33, leaving behind her husband and her 8-year-old son. May she merit an ascension in heaven and may the Almighty provide comfort to her family. It's great to speak to you again from the Torch Center in lovely Houston, Texas to share with you a very deep and, in my opinion, quite clever idea on this week's Parsha. As a reminder, my email address is rabbeowalbejima.com. In addition, a reminder of the Mitzvah Magnets, the special Torch Shabbat light switch cover project that I've spoken about the past couple of weeks. We've given away nearly a 1,000 units. We have thousands more to give away for free. Visit our website torchweb.org and get your free Shabbat light switch covers. This week's Parsha begins with a very interesting episode. Isaac and Rebecca have been married for nearly 20 years. They're barren. They're infertile. They pray. And finally, Rebecca becomes pregnant with twins. And we read in the fourth verse of the Parsha that these two boys were struggling, were agitating, were fighting within her. And she was so suffering. From this morning sickness, if you will, that she went to go speak with the prophet. She went to go find out what is really happening. And the prophet tells her that, well, it's not one child, it's two children. And these two children are going to spawn two nations. And they're going to go in very divergent paths. You're going to have the older one subject. He's going to serve the younger one. That's the opening episode of our Parsha. Now, there's a very interesting Rashi here to try to explain what is actually happening over here. What's the significance of this episode that Rebecca is suffering in her pregnancy? And Rashi gives us two interpretations, two explanations. The first is that whenever Rebecca was walking next to a house of Torah scholarship, then Jacob, one of the twin sons, he would run, he would struggle, he would stir, he would jostle to try to be born to be able to go study. Whereas when she would pass the entrance of a house of idolatry, then his twin brother, Asaph he would make a move to try to leave. And that was the fight that was happening within her. She was encountering contradictory impulses. And then the prophet tells her, well, it's two children, and they're going to go in different paths. Alternatively, Rashi tells us a second interpretation is that even though Jacob and Asaph were in utero, They were already struggling and wrestling with the inheritance of two worlds. I want to focus on the first reason here that Rashi offers. And that is that when Rebecca is passing a house of Torah, Jacob is drawn to Torah and he wants to be born. Whereas when she passes the house of idolatry, Esav, he is drawn to sin, he is drawn to idolatry, he is drawn to paganism, and he makes a move to try to leave and to go worship the idols. Now, Esau's intrauterine impulse for sin seems to contradict a teaching in the Talmud. He hasn't been born yet, and he's already trying to go sin. problem is that the Talmud in the Book of Sanhedrin on page 91b records the following dialogue. It's a dialogue between the leader of the Jews in the end of the 2nd century, Rabbi Judah the Prince, and the leader of the Romans, the emperor Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, they had a debate. And the question was, at what juncture in the development of a child in utero, or once they're born, at what point in time does the child get the yetzahara, does the child get the impulse for sin? Is it at the point of formation When the child's conceived, or is it at the point of exit when the child is born? That was the question posed. So Rabbi Judah the Prince, the leader of the Jewish people, he says, well, the evil inclination, it arrives at the point of formation at conception. Ergo, for the nine months that the child is in the mother's womb, the child is subject to the Sarah, is drawn after sin. Antoninus, he argued, he said, no, if that were the case, if the child in utero, if the child in the mother's womb during the months of pregnancy, if the child was influenced by the Eitzahara, then he would kick at the stomach of his mother. He would kick at the womb and he would force his way out. Therefore, invariably, it must be that the child only becomes subject to the Eitzahara at birth. What Antoninus is arguing is that the force of the Yetzirah is a force that is resistant to control of others. If the child was dominated by the Yetzirah when it was still in its mother's stomach, it would rebel against the mother's control, it would kick its way out, it would force itself to be miscarried, and therefore, from the fact that the children don't force themselves out, that's evidence, argues Antoninus, that the child is not subject to the Yetzirah for the nine months of gestation. And the child only gets the Yetzirah at birth. That's Antoninus' argument. And you know what? Rabbi Judah the Prince agrees to the argument. And he says, you know what? You're right. The child only gets the Yetzirah at birth. And in fact, he offers a verse in Scripture. The verse in the beginning of Genesis says, Lefetach chatos rovet, at the entrance, sin crouches. And that's the evidence that at the entrance of a child into this world, that's when sin crouches is about to pounce on him because at the moment of birth, the child gets the Yetzer Hara. It's a very interesting dialogue between two very important people, two historic people the great leader of the Jewish people, the author or the architect of the of the, the prince, together with the leader of the Romans, the emperor, Antoninus, they're having this very interesting philosophical debate. In fact, the Talmud records a whole list of very interesting theological and philosophical debates that these two great leaders had. And in fact, elsewhere in the Talmud, we're told that these two great leaders, they were colleagues – They were friends. In fact, they had known each other since they were children. And they would study Torah together. And Antoninus actually built a tunnel underneath his palace. And that tunnel connected to the house of Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he would sneak away outside of his palace to go study Torah with the great leader of the Jewish people. In fact, according to Jewish tradition, Antoninus actually converted and became a Jew. Now, Rabbi Judah the Prince... He's a very significant character in Jewish history. Not only was he the leader of the Jewish people, but he codified the Mishnah. He undertook and completed the most ambitious scholastic project up to that point in history, taking all of Oral Torah and canonizing and codifying it into the 63 books of Mishnah. And because he was such good friends... With the leader of the Romans at the time, with Antoninus, as a result of that, he had the political ability, the political cover, to be able to undertake this very ambitious and very momentous project to write down the Mishnah. So these are two very important people in in our history. We have Rabbi Judah the Prince, the leader of the Jews, and his aid, if you will, in completing the project of Mishnah, his friend, his study partner, his debate partner, his sparring mate, Antoninus. And they have this debate. Initially, it was a question, when to get the Yetzirah. And initially, Rabbi Judah the Prince posited that it was from conception. But comes along Antoninus and argues that no, if so, if the child had the Yetzirah in utero, it would kick its way out. And ultimately, the consensus was reached that for the duration of the time in utero, the zygote, the embryo, the fetus, the development of the child, there is no Yetzirah. And therefore, we would say simply, when the child's in his mother's womb, the child has no desire for sin. And yet, we read this Rashi over here, and Rashi tells us that when Rebecca is experiencing the morning sickness, when she's pregnant with Jacob and Asav, Asaph is stirring. He wants to be born every time she passes a house of idolatry. How can Asaph be influenced by the drive to sin, son Yetzirah? If he has no Yetzirah, you would think that he would not at all be drawn to sin. And yet we see over here that she passes, his mother passes a house of idolatry. And right away, Asav begins to jostle, begins to stir, he wants to go and participate in that sin. That's one question that we have to ask on this Rashi. Now, this question gets compounded when you look at Rashi's comment on the following verse. Verse 23 reads that she goes to speak to the prophet, and the prophet tells her, you have two nations In your womb, there's two regimes that are going to be separated from your inside and they're going to struggle with each other and eventually the elder one is going to serve the younger one. So you just read the verse simply. He is interpreting, you have Jacob in your womb, you have Asaph in your womb. These are going to be the fathers of great nations and they're going to have this cosmic, lifelong, history-long struggle and eventually the younger one which is Jacob, who's going to father the Jewish people, is going to triumph over his evil brother. That's what you would say. That's how you would interpret it, this verse without Rashi. But if you look at Rashi, Rashi says something mind-blowing. He says that when the prophet tells her that you have two nations in your belly, the word nations is goyim, Go, the, the word means nation. Goyim is nations. However, the way it's spelled in the Torah, it's not Goyim, it's "gayim," which means proud ones. And says Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, who is this referring to? Elu Antoninus the This is Antoninus and Rabbi Judah the Prince. There's a mind-blowing idea here found in the Talmud and quoted, cited by Rashi in the beginning of our Parsha. What the prophet is telling her is that the two children in her womb, it's not Jacob and Esau solely, it's actually Rabbi Judah the prince, Jacob's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild 1,500 years later, and Antoninus, the great descendant of Esau, they're actually the children inside of her. Now, what does that mean? Because we know Jacob and Asa are going to be born. So the Kabbalists explain that what this means is that the soul of Jacob and the soul of Rebbe Judah the prince, it's the same soul. The idea of reincarnation. After Jacob passed, his soul was placed into the body of Rebbe Judah the prince many centuries hence. And the soul of Esav became the soul that was given to Antoninus, to Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, the Roman emperor. And therefore, while we have a struggle here between Jacob and Esav, actually what the prophet is foretelling is that to a certain degree what's happening within her is the struggle, is the tension, is the conflict between Jacob and Esav. But really, on a deeper level, there's something going on over here between Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus. And some of the Kabbalists add that we know that Asa became a wicked one. And Antoninus, he is the rectification of Asa. He is the good version of Asa. What would Asav look like in the event that he did not follow the path that he chose? What would be the best case scenario? For Asav? it would have been something like Antoninus. He would have aided Jacob in his spiritual journeys, just as Rabbi Judah the prince was aided by his non-Jewish colleague Antoninus. In a different version, in a counterfactual version of history, Jacob would have been aided in the same way by his brother Esav. So that's a very interesting Rashi that we see again in the very next verse. But if you think about it, this is going to accelerate our original question. The Talmud tells us that Rabbi Judah the Prince and his colleague Antoninus, they concluded that the Eitzharad does not exist in utero. And they themselves were told there's something about them that are privy to this actual story. Again, Rashi tells us that when the prophet says you have two nations in your belly, what he's hinting at is that you actually have the spiritual identity of Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus within you. These were the same people that said many years later that there is no Yetzirah in utero yet. They themselves witnessed Asaph slash Antoninus jostling to be born to go serve idolatry, to go worship idolatry. So this is going to compound our question. How does Asaph desire sin, desire the idol worship in utero when we know that you don't have a Yetzirah at that juncture, you don't have the evil inclination, you don't have a desire to sin at that juncture? And to make matters ever more complicated, the identity of the person who proves that in the Talmud, we're told again by Rashi in the Talmud and the Kabbalists, that is the exact reincarnation of Asaph himself, and he is testifying that he was not subject to the Yitzhara in utero. Now, if this matter was not complicated enough, I want to add another problem to this discussion. You know, the question of how Esav was pursuing sin before he got that's a question that many of the commentators ask. However, there's, a, there's another question, and that is, not only how does Asav pursue sin, how does Jacob pursue Torah before he's born? And the reason for that question is that we find... A very interesting and perhaps a bit counterintuitive teaching in the Kabbalah that if someone did not have Yetzirah, if someone did not have an evil inclination, they wouldn't have that fiery zest to desire Torah either. That there is a good part of the Yetzirah, there's a good part of the evil inclination that motivates man for Torah. So if Jacob and Esau, both of them, did not have a desire of the Etzahara motivating, spurring them in utero, how does Esav pursue sin, but also how does Jacob pursue Torah? So this is a question that is discussed by many of the commentators on this verse and on this Rashi. So the Maharal, one of the great philosophers and commentators on the Torah and the Talmud, He says an idea, which is a very hard idea to really digest, and that is that certain people have an attraction to holiness outside of any motivation for it. They inherently are drawn to holiness, and that's Jacob. And then you have other people that are inherently drawn to sin, drawn to impurity, again, outside of the confines of inclinations, outside of the influence of the Harah, and that someone like Esav, he is just drawn to sin without having some instigator, so to speak, for that desire. I want to suggest maybe a framework to understand this question and to resolve this question. I want to suggest that these two accounts, account A, Jacob and Esav jostling to leave in utero, Jacob trying to go study Torah, Esav trying to go and worship idols, account A, and the second account in the Talmud of Rabbi Judah the Prince and Antoninus as to at what point in the child's development does the child get the Sahara, I want to suggest that these two are actually not in conflict at all. Quite the contrary, they are perfectly complementary. Let's go back to the Talmud. The Talmud asks the question, at what juncture do you get the Sahara So the first person to opine on that is Rabbi Judah the Prince. And remember, Rabbi Judah the Prince is the reincarnation of Jacob. Antoninus is the reincarnation of Esav. They are intimately aware of what happened to them, so to speak, during the story here in the beginning of our Parsha, when they were each being drawn In their own direction. So Rabbi Drew the Prince says, remember, we were in utero. And whenever mom, whenever Rebecca passed a house of Torah, I jostled to be born. And we know if you don't have Yetzirah, you don't desire Torah with the same intensity. And that seems to indicate that that we must have had a Yetzirah. And you remember when mom, when she passed the house of idolatry, you jostled, you tried to be born. Obviously, you were under the influence of the Yetzirah. So initially, comes along, Rabbi Drew the Prince says, must be that we had a Yetzirah, we had an evil inclination, all the way since the formation, all the way since conception. And what does Antoninus respond? He said, if so, if a child Had a Yetzirah, before it was born, it would kick its way out. So initially, the way we explain that is that a Yetzirah, to it, the control of others is anathema. If it was subject to the whims of the mom, it wouldn't be able to bear it. And therefore, it would force its way out. It would force its way to independence. Maybe what Antoninus is actually referencing is that same story the story of Jacob and Asav. What he's telling us is, yes, we jostled. I wanted to go do idolatry. You wanted to go do Torah. We jostled. We stirred. We made a move to leave. But ultimately what happened? We remained in mother's womb. We didn't leave. If we had the Sahara empowering our drive, we would have kicked our way out. The Sahara what it does is, it amplifies the drives. We had the Maral. Maral told us that there are drives for good. There are attractions to righteousness. There are other people who are attracted to evil. And that's outside of the Eight Sahara. Thus, Jacob and Asav, they did seek Torah. They did seek idolatry, respectively, in utero. What would have happened? Had those desires, both Jacob's desire for Torah and Asaph's desire for idolatry, been exacerbated, been amplified by the Yetzirah, then the womb of Rebekah would not have been able to contain them, and indeed, they would have hit their way out towards their goal. And Rabbi Judah the Prince was convinced by this argument. He agreed, and in fact, he empowered it by quoting a verse from Genesis, that indeed, at the entrance of a child into this world, sin is crouching and ready to jump upon them. And thus, the teaching over here in Rashi and the Talmud in Sanhedrin about Rabbi Judah the prince and Antoninus, it's actually one and the same. Indeed, it's true that Jacob and asaph did not have the Yitzhara motivating them when they were still in their mother's womb. And in fact, if they did, they would have kicked their way out, Esav towards sin, and Jacob towards Torah. And I think the lesson for us is, first of all, it's kind of cool to see how everything fits in so nicely. And we have subsequent verses that Rashi says things. He does not reference the Talmud, but then you open up the Talmud where it talks about the question of when do you get the Yetzirah, and it cites Rabbi the prince and Antoninus and Rashi tells us that's actually Jacob and Esav, it's kind of a little bit of a mind-blowing idea. But I think for us, there is a very powerful lesson in, in both directions. It shows us the frightening power of the Sahara. The Almighty gave us a force that's designed, that's engineered to push us away from Him, to push us towards sin, to be a barrier between us and god and when it's mobilized for sin it's going to kick down all the doors it's going to break down all the barriers in pursuit of sin had asef had the Sahara, he would have kicked his way out when his mother passed the house of idolatry but on the flip side i think there's a very positive lesson for us as well we're told by the kabbalists that without the atehara Man would not have that same desire for Torah. The Yetzirah adds a desire, adds some oomph to the desire for Torah. In a weird way, the passion, the drive, the lust for sin can also be directed towards Torah. Had Jacob's desire for Torah been empowered by the Yetzirah, he too would have kicked down all the barriers between him and Torah, and he would have accessed the object of his desires. He would have kicked out and tried to join the academy of Torah every time his mom passed the house of scholarship. And the lesson for us is is that we have within us a force that, of course, by default is engineered to try to propel us away from God and towards sin. And that's why it's a great danger. But we're also informed that there is a way to weaponize it to our advantage. There is a way to turn it from an enemy, from a liability, into a great aid, into a great ally in pursuit of righteousness. And it can help us shatter all barriers, tear down all the walls blockading us from holiness. And maybe broadly speaking, we look at Esav, in version 1 of that story, what do we have? We have Esav drawn solely to sin, and even in our parsha, he's trying to kill Jacob. He's dead set on trying to prevent Jacob from achieving his destiny, building the Jewish people. Comes along Antoninus, version Esav 2.0, And this is the better version of him. And what do we see? We see that same power, that same force, that same vigor, that same great potential being used properly. We have him being an aide, a friend, a colleague, someone who is assisting Rabbi Judah the Prince, the reincarnation of Jacob, in achieving his goal. If not for Antoninus, Rabbi Judah the Prince would not have that political cover and that political strength to be able to write down the Mishnah. So in a weird way, Antoninus is one of the great heroes of Jewish history. This is what Asaf should have been. This is what he became. But broadly for us, the lesson is that we should galvanize and mobilize the forces that maybe initially are motivating us towards sin and find a way to redirect them and to utilize that great force, that great power That is beating within us for good, for Torah, for breaking down all those barriers that are stopping us from accessing our soul and from connecting and cleaving to the Almighty God who created us and who wants to have a connection with us. This was a very interesting, maybe it's a little bit complicated idea, but it's, I think, a valuable one for us. A, because it shows us just how neatly everything fits in nicely, but also this grand takeaway that the force of evil, so to speak, the force of sin, the inclination of sin, the it's a hurrah, the evil inclination can be used for good if we know how to manipulate it, if we turn it and twist it into being indeed a force for great good, a force that knocks down the barriers separating us from holiness. I thank you all for listening. My email address is RabbiWalby at I look forward to hearing from you if you have any questions or comments or feedback of any sort. And once again, signing off from the Torch Center in Houston. Have a fantastic rest of your week. And I look forward to studying the Torah and the Parsha together with you again next week.